Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And today we are talking election. And with that, we are, of course, working through this doctrine of salvation. We've looked at the Old Testament and New Testament terms for salvation. Last time we talked about the atonement. And so today we're going to begin to explore this whole concept of uh, salvation, how salvation is worked out. Um, And so specifically, we're gonna begin by talking about this very non-controversial topic of election. Um, And there are a lot of aspects to the unfolding plan of God's salvation, and we plan to cover many of those. Um, But today we begin with this particular topic. So before we get into election, yeah, uh, let's just say a word about God's motive and then also his method of salvation. Right, because the motive of God's election is always going to be his sovereign grace. Um, and that's in contradistinction to guys like Leighton Flowers who will say it's other things. But um, in the Old Testament, there's going to be two terms that are used to speak of this. Uh, Hanan, which is usually translated as charis or grace in the Septuagint. Um, so you have passages like Genesis 6-8, but Noah found favor favor or grace, if you want, in the eyes of the Lord uh, in Exodus 33-19. And he said, and this is Yahweh, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I shall show, uh, will show compassion. Or in 2 Kings 13, 23, but the Lord was gracious, there's a word, uh, to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. So that's one term. The other one is chesed, a covenantal term often translated as steadfast love or loving kindness. And it carries the idea of this unfailing love. So that's uh, his motive. Yeah. Um, and then in the New Testament, there's there's one word really that used is used primarily to speak of God's grace. And it is this term of charis, uh, just translated as grace. And by far, this word is mostly used by Paul to describe uh, the work of salvation for sinners. Um, and so its basic sense is that of free or unmerited favor. I think that's the one most people are probably familiar with. Um, now, when we talk about grace being a free, that free offer of grace, um, the term free there is not speaking of the cost. Um, and I mean, the reason for that is because it was very, very costly. costly. Very costly. Um, but, but rather it's, it's this idea of, of being free of any external compulsion and, and that is what we would say makes grace truly sovereign. Uh, grace is not something that was owed to anyone, um, and God was not externally coer- coerced or moved to feel any obligation to save the sinner. And that's important because many will conflate God's sovereignty 
with the idea of God's omnipotence, uh, that he's all powerful to be like, oh, God's sovereign. And they're just, they're thinking of his omnipotence, yeah. right? Yeah, that he can do anything. Yeah, um, but that's not really actually the meaning of sovereignty. Rather, sovereignty is the idea of, of being removed um, from something external. Um, you know, think of a sovereign state. They're not affected by any state outside of them. Um, it's accountable to no one and it functions in its own best interest. Right. Um, right. And so when we say that God's grace is sovereign, he's not giving it or showing it because he needs to, or he's been coerced. There's nothing in the object that's being shown grace. Or that you're making him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's what we mean by sovereign grace. And that's how it's used in the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a good example of this. And we don't have the time to walk through the passage, but um, in that passage, you see God's provision of salvation, uh, not only being gracious, but again, also sovereign. And you see it most explicitly because it comes against the backdrop of human depravity, which you're going to see in verses one through three. Yeah, that's probably one of the best passages. I mean, Genesis 6, 5 is the best. That's a good one too. But yeah. uh, in the New Testament, that's the one to go to, uh, Ephesians to one through three, there's nothing there. By the time you're done with that, you realize that apart from God's grace, nothing is going to change your sinful condition. Yeah, um, yeah. You're, I mean, you're described as dead. Yeah, in your trespasses and sins. Um, and so he gives the the human state there in verses one through three, but then in verses one or four through ten, they they help us understand more fully what that grace is, and it's it's important to understand that grace is far more than mere mercy. Um, this is a distinction that I like to make. Um, remember, mercy is the idea of not giving to the sinner what he deserves, but then grace is the idea that God now gives to the sinner what he doesn't deserve, um, which is abundant blessing. It's on top of that mercy. Yeah. Uh, and so in verses four through 10, um, they, they outline that unfathomable blessing, but in light of our great sin, again, in verses one through three. So we see the details of our blessing in verses four through six, um, which includes the source, which is God himself. We'll then see the design of our blessings in verse seven, which is that eternal reality of this provision. And then in verses nine through 10, we see the elaborations of these blessings. So if you ever want to teach on that, that's your outline. Bam. Right there, free of charge. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it, well, it's, it's a wonderful passage in many ways, because again, not only does it show that grace comes against the backdrop of our sinfulness, but it shows how utterly sovereign God's grace truly is. Right. I mean, it's got the the classic line, but God yeah. being rich in mercy and uh, with the love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you are saved. And so in light of the darkness, it doesn't matter. God acted, God worked, but he didn't open just a way, but literally he actually acted to the point of making us alive in Christ. So it's a, it is a wonderful passage. So that's... Um, the motive, it's God's grace, and it's a sovereign, free grace. It's not motivated outside of him. Uh, what's the method? Well, the, here we actually enter into space and time, uh, and we consider the actual outworking of God's plan of salvation in the lives of humans. And so Romans 8, 28 to 30 is where you would uh, go to. Uh, and most of you know it, but I'll read it. Uh, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For, 
and again here he's now giving reason, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined he also called, and these whom he called he also justified, and these whom he justified he also glorified. Now this is this is a key passage uh, that gives us a biblical ordo ordo salutis uh, or order of salvation versus the ones that are logical constructs. Um, there are many different thoughts on that that we won't get into, but let let, let me just quote uh, from Redemption Accomplished and Applied by uh, John Murray. He says. Nothing clinches the argument for this feature of the call, namely that it is efficacious and accomplishes what it sets out to do, than the teaching of Romans 8, 28 to 30, where the call is stated to be according to God's purpose, and it finds its place in the center of that unbreakable chain of events, which is its beginning uh, in the divine foreknowledge and its consummation in glorification. This is just saying that the effectual call ensures perseverance because it's grounded in the security of God's purpose and grace. And so the passage is very powerful because of what are in the Greek is called the aorists. Um, we have them in the English as well, uh, and, and they're used because each one of these uh, events are viewed by God as already having been accomplished. That's the key thing. It's not that they will be glorified, but they are glorified. Uh, they're, they're a done deal, if you will. And so in addition to this, the point made by Paul is that we know all things ultimately work out for good because those foreknown, meaning graciously loved by God, are also those who will be glorified. There's no hint of potentiality, no hint of failure, simply an unbroken chain of events, all having been accomplished by a God who is for us, which is what Romans 8.31 says. Yeah, so in short, in other words, God saves sinners through the method of sovereign grace, um, where although salvation is a complete or finished act in the eternal mind of God, he still chooses to use means uh, in space, time, and history to accomplish that salvation for the sinner. So here's what we mean by that. A person has to be elected, right? Um, then they have to be predestined. Um, then a person has to be called through the hearing of the gospel. They have to respond to the gospel, which at that point is regeneration. A person has to then grow in that gospel, being conformed into the image of the one who's called them. That's the process of sanctification. A person has to finish that gospel race that now has been set before them. That's the idea of perseverance. And then a person has to be finally set apart or made new in the end of all things, which is what we'll refer to as final glorification. And so there are many more realities and nuances and things within that. But while the, the salvation of the sinner was a sovereign act of God, meaning um, an unmoved choice by God to save the sinner, there's a way now in which that saving act works itself out in the life of the sinner. Right. So it starts in where we're not even aware eternity of Eternity past. Yeah, eternity yeah. past, before he made the foundation of the world, right? Um, but then eventually it enters into space and time, which is what we've already said. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is, this is what we're going to spend essentially the next episodes unpacking, Lord willing. And we're going to begin with the issue here today with something referred to as the doctrine of election. All right. So like always, we start with the terminology. And in the Old Testament, um, the key word there would be, one of them would be Bahar. Uh, the word is used to express that choosing, which is 
has ultimate and eternal significance. On the one hand, God chooses a people or certain tribes or specific individuals and a place for his name. In all of these cases, serviceability rather than simple arbitrariness is at the heart of the choosing. Thus, it's Yahweh who chose Israel to be a holy and therefore uh, to serve him as his witness among the nations. But her election is not based on her greatness, but on the greatness of the Lord's love. Uh, you'll see that in Deuteronomy 7.7. 7. The choice of Israel is confirmed by the exile and the restoration. For in a new way, Israel now bears witness of the Lord to the nations. Uh, you'll see that in Isaiah 41.8. Uh, the scriptural doctrine of divine capacity for choice demonstrates that purpose and personality, not blind mechanism, are is at the heart of the universe. Since God carefully chooses certain ones for a certain or specific task, he can also reject them if they deviate from that, pers uh, that purpose. That's all out of the theological word book of the Old Testament. In addition, there's this idea of separating in this word, word as well. And you can see that in places like Deuteronomy 4.37. Yeah, so, so there in the Old Testament, the idea of electing is not just some arbitrary I choose you, and then that's it. It's right. you're being chosen for task or service, if you will. Yeah. Um, another word is badal, and that word carries the range of meaning of to separate selves to, or to be separated, to make a difference. Sometimes you'll see it as divide or separate or sever. Um, Leviticus 20, 24, 1 Kings 8, 53. Um, and then you have yada which is, <laughs> it's, a key, it's a key one actually. And this term simply means to know. That's how it's often translated uh, in the Old Testament. And it's used in a myriad of ways, but one clear way speaks of God's choosing. So for instance, in Genesis 18, 19, for I have chosen him, that's the word yada, why so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteous and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Uh, Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, that's Yada, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Uh, then in Amos 3.2, you only have I chosen, again, Yada, among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. <laughs> <laughs> But, but that's because they're in this unique covenantal relationship with uh, Yahweh. Yeah. Another word is laka, uh, to make, or I'm sorry, to take, uh, meaning to get or to fetch, uh, to lay hold of, like to seize, um, receive, acquire, such as to buy, bring, marry. So you're going to take a wife. That's what we mean by marry. Uh, snatch uh, or take away. This carries the thought of taking in the manner of choosing or selecting, which is how a lot of people kind of think of election. Uh, Numbers 8, 16, or 1 Kings eleven thirty-seven. 37. Yeah. And in the New Testament, uh, you also have terms related to choosing. Um, and so just quickly, the, the first one would be the uh, eklegomai word group. Um, this comes from Freiburg's lexicon. The basis of salvation is God's calling people to belong to himself, elect, chosen. Uh, substantively, uh, speaking of the community of believers or the elect. Uh, so Matthew 24, 22 says, and unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. 
but for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. All right. Another uh, word group is the hieratidzo. Uh, to choose, it means, in a strengthened sense, choose with delight. Uh, actually, it can carry that sense of adopt. Uh, this comes from Fry- Freiburg as well. Um, passages there would be Matthew twelve eighteen and Second Thessalonians two thirteen. The, we, we provide those um, not to break them apart, but just so that you can look them up and see how they're used in various contexts. Yeah. Then you got the prokaryotes in my word group. Um, the definition of this would be strictly handpicked beforehand. Hence, choose in advance, ordain, appoint. Uh, in the passive sense, it means to be appointed. That would be Acts 320, 22, 14. Or proskara uh, I didn't say that very well, um, but sufficient. Choose in advance to appoint beforehand or select previously. There you'll see it in Acts 10, 41. Let me do another one. Um, there's also terms related to appointing, like the Tasso group. Um, assign to a place or task, to appoint, decide, passive. Uh, it's, it's in relation to properly constituted authority to be instituted. In other words, you're, uh, you're to be appointed or be established. That's when it's used passively. Uh, Acts 11, or I'm sorry, Acts 13, 38. Yeah, then you have the word, uh, the kami word, um, and this is figuratively of a person being appointed or being set or being destined. You'll see that in Luke 2.34, Philippians 1.16, uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. And, and then tithemi, uh carries the idea of choosing or placing something or someone in a particular place. Uh, John 15.16 would be an example of that. Yeah, then you have uh, some words related to the idea of predestinating. Uh, so the first one would be pra or rizo. Um, and this just means to decide on beforehand or to determine in advance. Uh, Acts 4.28, Romans 8.29, 30. And then pro my, my My mouth is not working. <laughs> Say it for me. pro Gnosko. How was, how was I saying it? I don't know. I don't even know. It doesn't matter. Twice it's used in the New Testament. It refers to knowing in advance in Acts 26.5 or 2 Peter 3.17. The rest of the New Testament usages will refer to select in advance or choose or appoint beforehand. So those are the terms. Yeah. So then uh, we'll talk just a little bit about the basis then for this idea of election. Um, And the first thing to understand is the basis for election is not found in man in any way. Uh, So this all flows from just a massive number of scriptures that show the fullness of man's depravity. We saw many of those when we discussed martyology or the doctrine of sin. Um, Now, this doctrine, it it will always be a source of stumbling for many until they come to rest with just some certain things. First, we would say that God is not unjust in election. Second, there is nothing meritorious in man. Um, Third, there is no one who will go to hell who truly desired to be with God according to God's standards. Uh, And fourth, there will will not be any who wanted to be saved but were somehow prevented. Those last two are really big because that's how a lot of people who don't like this doctrine of election will try to paint it as like, so there's going to be people who want to be saved but because they're not elect— 
won't be saved. But the Bible would say there's no one that right. wants to be saved. They're dead in their sin. They walk according to the power of the prince of the power of error. They, they're slaves to their own lusts. They're they have no hope and no desire after God. It's God and God alone who is rich in his mercy and elects us unto salvation. So those last two are really, really important for people to get their heads around. And by the way, we're we're not going to try to convince people or prove people that we're right on these things. Uh, if you're one that hates election um, and you're trying to see if maybe we can convince you, we're not going to because— we're just going to say, here's what the texts are saying. Here's the various words. You can look them up. And at some point, you're going to have to wrestle with the fact that you are as sinful as the Bible really says. Yeah. Nothing more. Yeah. And we would also say that, because this is another common thing that'll, that people will say or wonder, um, we would say that the doctrine of election in no way suppresses evangelism, and especially if it's properly understood. Rather, we would actually say it's a source of motivation for evangelism, um, because when a believer rightly understands this doctrine, he then understands that God, uh, not him or her, is the ultimate source of bringing salvation to a person. And it's funny, because people will argue, well, no, we, we, we know that, we know that, um, but we still believe that we have free will. And so they say, ultimately, we have to make that decision. But what they don't ask is how is it they're able to make a decision? Because I would I would tell a person, look, I have no problem with you saying you chose God. And that's where some people in the reform world would say, no, 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 they didn't choose. Actually, they did choose. But the reason they chose was because God regenerated their hearts. And that which was blind to them now becomes obvious to them. Um, that which they hated, now they love. It, it's because God is at work that he has so changed their nature that they now will choose because their nature is such that it wants to choose. Um, and so the, I, I've told people this a lot. Um, they say, well, I, I believe that it's up to the person. And I'm like, that's fine. Um, I mean, if you want to believe that, I still know what's ultimately driving yeah. the salvation of, a, an, of an individual. But I would say to this to them is, so do you pray for like your mom who's not saved? Well, yeah. I'm like, but why? If, if you're saying that God does not want to uh, make a robot or all the other kinds of silly things that we'll hear, um, then this is how you it would really, a conversation with God would go. It's like, God, I'm praying for my mom. I'm praying that she would come to you and that you would save her. Please change her. And God would just simply say, whoa, 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 uh, I can't do that. I've done everything I've done up, up to now that I can do to make the way possible. It's really up to her. And if I were to do anything else, I would affect her will. And I'm not allowed to do that. And so it's up to her. So you need to go to your mom and convince her because I've done everything. I'm now waiting passively and hoping that she'll make the right decision. That's really the reality of the theology of the person who says, I believe that it's ultimately up to the person. God has done what he's done. And so oftentimes when I listen to people who say, well, I hate Calvinism or uh, the sovereignty of God and salvation or however they want to say it, um, but when I listen to them talk about the need for people to come to faith, they're actually talking like a Calvinist. Yeah. They're wanting God to act. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you, you've just broken from your own theology. The reality is, you know in the, your heart that God must act, that your mom is dead, and she is not wanting to come to faith. Um, 
And so you're pleading that God would change her. And that's at the essence of what election is and, um, and changing and stepping into space and time and, and yeah. changing a, 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 a rebel into a child of God. Yeah, and that last point you said is that's what's helpful for me in making the distinction um, because there's a difference when you're talking about the theology of something versus how that theology works itself out practically. Yeah. So we can talk about how God theologically he elects people but how that election now works itself out in space time and history is something more tangible so we can look at passages where jesus says come to me all who are weary and heavy laden well the non-calvinist is going to say see it's up to the person's will we'll say no that's just one of god's means of how you have to call the person (laughs) you got to bring the gospel um so there's a difference between understanding the complete theology of something versus now how this is working out in the life of a person so we there were some examples of this concept uh we see in deuteronomy 7 7 um and i'll just read it It says the lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples um in john 1 13 it says but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of god even to those who believe in his name, and here's the key, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So here again, you see God doing the act. Yeah, and that that regeneration, that being born is of God's will, not our will. This is one of the key passages you just take a person to who says, well, you believe and then you're regenerated. uh, that's the means by my, by my the exercise of my will. I'm now going to trust or ask Jesus in my heart, however they say it. But actually, they're born of God. God is the one who initiates and does that change. And as a result, actually, people don't understand that grammatically, verse thirteen right. precedes verse twelve. Uh, so, why did you receive him? It's because you were born of God, not of your own will. And if again, this is where grammar comes in and. Uh, We don't know grammar very well anymore. Um, And then you got the basis for election is found in God's sovereign grace. Um, So we already discussed that in the beginning, um, but the key passages you can get in our show notes. Uh, We put a few of them there, but there's many others as well. Um, But when election is considered, therefore, it follows that it it is truly an unconditional election. Uh, which just simply means that there is nothing outside of God's own sovereign choice that is motivating that election. Um, and so when we can grasp that, it, I think it can no longer be discussed that election is somehow unjust of God. Um, it is, it's never on the basis of the elect, but on the basis of the elector. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that simple. Um, and it, it's still that mindset that we have that somehow we are sovereign in our own right or that we are on some almost an equal footing of God. That And it gets all the way back into creator-creature uh, relationship. But anyhow, so what's the purpose then of election? Well, the immediate purpose is sanctification, both in a punctiliar sense and a progressive sense, meaning there's this point where God sets us apart. That's that punctiliar 
thing where we've been set apart, but also in that progressive sense that we are growing with respect to that. So when speaking to Israel in Deuteronomy 7.11, therefore you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments, which I'm commanding you today to do them. So in light of being elect, he says, therefore you're going to do these things. Now you're, you've been set apart to obey in a certain way. Uh, or in Romans 8, 29 to 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So here, that unbroken chain of events, all of them ultimately culminating in being glorified, um, all of that is describing that sanctification that sanctifying process of that everyone who is saved understands because they experience it. Yeah. So what then is the ultimate purpose of election? Well, we would say it's God's glory. And this is coming from Ephesians 1, 6. I'll just read it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, and here's the key phrase, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And that's a purpose statement. That's Yeah, to the praise, so for the purpose of the praise of his glorious grace. And you see that with the first word there with blessed. I I believe it's verse 3. It begins that way. So election is actually... Paul's reason. That's the content of his worship to God. It's because of this electing grace. Yeah. Um, and, and people don't like it when uh, apologists for the Reformed doctrine say this, but um, if you're going to ultimately make salvation your choice, um, then the praise goes to you. That, it's that simple. But the reality is the reason we lift up our voices is not because he, in praise, is not because he opened the way and then we made the right choice. Phew, good for us. Um, but we actually are instinctively praising him because we know that we were in a helpless condition and God reached out in his grace and saved us, not on the basis of us, for nothing good is in us. That gets back to homardiology again, but on the basis of sheer, free, unmerited grace on his part. So yeah. very important. Right. So then just a word on how to teach this uh, or <laughs> talk about this doctrine. First, we would just say teach it in its biblical context. There is a place to teach uh, election in a theological context, but again, not for the purpose of creating a logical system that you're now going to then place over the scriptures. And that happens a lot. Yeah. That people are hearing it theologically, and then they're trying to shove that down people's throat. The best way is just open the scripture and systematically let the word work. And you're going to find that if you're careful with that and you're faithful in teaching the word, people begin to change their mind and they're not even aware that they're changing because the word is doing its work rather than buy into my system that I don't really fully grasp <laughs> and do it now, the cage stage. You know? Right. Yeah. As if, as if the doctrine of election is the gospel itself. Yeah. Right? It's not. Yeah. So again, great. We would just say great care needs to be taken. And then also, especially to, and this is the challenging part, but the mark of a good teacher on this stuff is they actually can keep election in its own 
rightful place, meaning they're teaching it in the positive sense. Um, they're giving it its positive meaning that, and that's how the scriptures describe it. Again, yeah. Paul in uh, Ephesians one, it's his means for praise and worship of God. It's all positive there. Um, but we tend to, it's hard to swallow because we focus on the negative aspect of it. Um, too often it's taught in a cold and a sterile way that robs it of, of its goodness and of its glory. And the primary recipients to this teaching, we would say, are not the unconverted, but actually the converted. Uh, remember, Paul is always writing to believers when he's talking about these things. Um, and so uh, just remember that. We'd also say that you should not try to shield the young believer, the newly converted from learning these things? Actually, I had that early on in my ministry here as pastor was I had a, an elder rebuke me, and he's like, these are not doctrines for the young in faith. These are these are for mature ones. Well, he completely rejected the doctrine already, uh, So, which I laughed because even he didn't like them, but he saw himself as mature. But I, I was able to show from the scripture that, no, Paul is writing these things. He's not saying, okay, well, all the young believers leave the room, and then we'll finish reading the epistle to Ephesians. He actually starts it out with election, right. and he weaves it throughout the book of Ephesians. And and so this is good for your young people, uh, the brand new Christian, to, to begin to wrestle with and to hear, uh, because it it is to the praise of God. But again, if you're purely teaching it in that cold, sterile, like you said it, um, way of theology, rather than out of its context that, you know, we were dead in our sins, but God, right. in his rich mercy and love with which he loved us, he made us alive together in Christ Jesus. How can you not like that passage? <laughs> you know, yeah. Every Christian can remember that day where they're like, man, you know, that that is... That's precious, and that's good. That they're thanking God for their electing, His electing love, um, and so just teach it within its context and re realize: don't shy from teaching it, but always within its biblical um, framework. Yes, that's good. And just to throw in a quick note here, we'd also say evangelism's probably not the place to start talking about election. Yeah, <laughs> it just it will create more confusion than clarity, um, and if you're dealing with an unconverted mind, they're going to start to view God in weird categories. Yeah. Because um, they have their own sense of justice and right, what's right. Right. They need the gospel. And that's why what you said earlier, the gospel is not election. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus on behalf of us for our sin and for our salvation. So the call is still believe. What we know is that the elect will believe which is also why it frees us to evangelize because we're not, it's not up to us. God will ultimately bring to himself his elect, but the means is going to be through that evangelistic effort. So don't, don't try to convince a person to become a Calvinist before they first <laughs> become a Christian. Right. I guess that's all we're saying. Yeah. Uh, a second thing is teach the reality of human responsibility. Uh, Places like in Romans 10, 14 and 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9, as well as others, they teach that man is 100% responsible. And yet right next to those passages, with which speak of God being 100% sovereign in this election, it's a tension that you have to become comfortable with because the scripture seems to be. <laughs> um, now, don't put too much weight on one side or the other. Simply hold them 
both in their proper place. A great little book. Did you ever read J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God? Have you ever read that? No, I haven't read that That's actually a good little book, and I would uh, commend that to anyone uh, because he talks about it as an antinomy, is that the reality is, is that God is sovereign, and yet man is held responsible. And so in light of that, let's talk about what evangelism looks like. And so it's proper to teach a reality of perseverance alongside this doctrine as well. And so you hear people saying phrases like, well, once saved, always saved. I grew up in that. Uh, but that that concept is not used in the Bible. Instead, the Bible will speak of perseverance. So election is a biblical doctrine, but only those who ultimately persevere to the end will show that they're truly elect. That's what bothers me when I see men and women who are in gross sin, but they love election. And they'll, they'll argue about it, and they'll debate it, and they, they think of themselves as good Calvinists, and yet their lives are in living rebellion to the living God. I'm like, there's nothing in your life that evidences that you are the elect. There's no evidence <laughs> yeah. of a conversion or anything else. So remember that it's all put together. You don't get to pick and choose. Election is also uh, brought in alongside the idea of persevering. And the thing that the person should be saying is not, well, I know I'm elect, because you don't know that. What you do know is that you say you believe these things, now live in light of that, persevere to the end, and prove that you're the elect. Yeah, that's a good word. So that's our basic discussion here of election. Uh, There's a lot more that we could say that we didn't even touch on because, I mean, it just wouldn't be conducive for a podcast like this. But if you do have any thoughts or questions on this, we'd love to hear from you. Um, next time, Lord willing, we'll get into the idea of effectual call, uh, regeneration, adoption, all those good things. Uh, but until then, make sure to tune in, join this conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on election. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and tell a friend.